What's going on, guys? Today's episode is brought to you by Adopt a Minor Leaguer. Adopt a Minor Leaguer is a wonderful organization that collects sponsorships from people from all over the world that goes directly to the pockets of minor leaguers. For around $150 per sponsorship, you could help make the difference between a minor leaguer sleeping on an air mattress or sleeping on a normal bed or eating McDonald's throughout the day or having a normal three-course meal throughout the day. So visit our social media websites for more information on how you can get involved and sponsor a minor league. Let's hit it. Ben, we got our first sponsor. Actually, it's kind of cool. And adopt a minor leaguer. So no wonder this is episode 42. And it's all about baseball. And it had to be episode 42, right? What a coincidence. It, had to. it was meant to be. It was meant to be. I don't believe in coincidences. <laughs> Jackie Robinson, man. Yeah. And we, we talked about Jackie Robinson, the Trailblazers, and the Game Changers episode. Go check that one out. But today, we brought on two uh, professional baseball players to tell us a little bit about their story, A.J. Dean and Dylan Hoffman, um, part of the San Diego Padres organization. So I look forward to you guys hearing that. That's in the second half of this episode. But before we get into that, we're obviously going to talk a little bit about baseball, what's going on. There is no minor league season this year. So uh, that's why adopt a minor leaguer is even more important. Obviously going to talk a little bit about Jackie Robinson, the man, the myth, the legend. We're going to go into a little bit of mental health, of course, um, you know, and talk about what the experience is like on the mound, you know, the relationship they develop with the catcher, with the team around them, you know, defending and making plays. Oh, right? yeah. um, Who knew the catcher would be talk the about... team therapist? Yeah. Who knew? Yeah. So, yeah, the, the two guys we have on the podcast are, are pitchers. Yeah, man. So it's, it's really a, a fascinating uh, view of, you know, the, the experience is that, that duel, right, between – a pitcher, a batter, you know, and what's kind of going on moment to moment, all the subtleties, you know, all of the, the kind of nonverbals that go into uh, to really um, either run or strikeout situation, yeah. right? Yeah, that, so, that battery, the pitcher and the catcher, those are always the, the most unique individuals on the baseball team. My limited experience playing in high school, they were definitely the most interesting individuals. So we have two of them on today. It's going to be a great podcast. As always, we do have a little bit of a of a tangent, if you will, where we start off the conversation. Um, we brought in Benjamin Vogel, our new program manager, to lead us through this social media discussion and how the interplay between that and, and mental health. We've talked about it a little bit before in, in, in previous episodes, but now we get a perspective of someone who's on the border between a Gen Z and millennial. Um, Shout out to 96 kids. Yep. So he's our honorary Gen <laughs> Z for this discussion. Go so yeah. Uh, <laughs> No, it's going to be a lot of fun. And did you know, surprise, surprise, that resilience happens to be uh, a really important thing for pitchers? You know, mindfulness, gratitude, all of these great things that we talk about, you're going to find out are, are really important for pitchers to do what they do. do all right. Do you feel me? You're in completely different, and I mean this, completely different social networks than we have. And one of the one of the things that makes your voice and your message so powerful is that 
based on the way things are now, and this is something I was trying to kind of convey earlier, I don't think I did a good, a good job of, we've become even more disconnected socially than it was when me and Tori were kids and when me and Tori were like in our early 20s, like you are now. Like social networking has actually made us less connected, not necessarily like in the in the sense of like, you know, obviously we see a whole lot, right? We see things happen instantaneously now in terms of what's going on other places, but we're not having authentic interactions anymore. We're just like getting together to play ball around, you know, around the block, around the neighborhood yeah. and activating, you know, guys from just house. different places. Everything is all censored and filtered oh, yeah. out. And then you have your own little network even online that you're really just mostly interacting with. Yeah. You're not necessarily interacting you create those echo chambers. directly with. Yeah. One thing I want to talk about um, is just how social media is kind of constructed now. And like, I really can't emphasize this enough. This is good and this is bad. Like there's pros and cons to this. People are very sensitive now and like rightfully so because in the past few decades, society has kind of like abused the freedom of speech and a lot of freedoms. They've gone out of their way to hurt people and like, use specific words and actions to make a point to hurt someone. And as a result of that, our society has become very sensitive and quote-unquote soft. And one trend I've noticed on social media is this idea of blocking people or filtering people out. Canceling? Like, Cancel some, culture? Yeah. Canceling, unsubscribing, unfollowing, muting. Muting is huge. And I get it. It's like, like a big thing is like, if someone's if someone comments someone comments something hurtful about me, I don't want to hear that. I'm just gonna filter out the negativity in my life and I'm gonna mute you. And I mean, and then like that, then and then what's left is that you're only left with people who think and act the same way as you do. And again, that's good and bad. I mean, my personal response is that's not the best way to go about responding to that. I think there are better ways of actually sitting down and having these hard, uncomfortable conversations. And this applies to so many different types of scenarios. Just saying like, hey, let's be, let's be real. I'm from background X and you're from background Y. As a result, we have two totally different approaches to situation Z or whatever it is. And we conflict. There's no need for us to conflict. But we don't do that. That's yeah. not what social media does nowadays. It's more like if you're not thinking it's my way or the highway. Yeah. That's pretty much what yeah, it I love is. That. No, I love that, man. I love that. And I, and I just want to add, you know, in mental health, uh, we talk a lot about this notion of affect. Um, mm. And in psychiatry, in fact, it's it's one of the things that's, uh, you know, one of our physical exam markers, you know, our physical exam findings. We look at, you know, and do observations of people's affect, meaning their emotional, facial expression, the expression of their body, the expression of their tone of voice, these kinds of things that ultimately convey their internal emotions, right? And the problem with, you know, I hate to use the terms like problems, but I think one of the challenges with social media is that so much of the dialogue is without affect. I mean, it's just text, in ter- you know, in code language, right? It, it's not information without context, right? We all understand generally is something that you can't necessarily take as being fact or, you know, something that you can really take as, as being true evidence. Same thing goes with, you know, when you're getting information, you know, from another source with no affect, you don't really understand where people are, you know, are coming from when they ask these questions, they make these comments. And so it's sort of like incomplete conversations that are happening online all right. the time. 
I, I, yeah, I, lo- I love the points everyone's bringing up. I want to I want to talk about how the, the positive things of social media. I think Ben, you touched on a little bit, and Armin, you touched on it, where you we can see something like happened to George Floyd instantaneously, and we can get galvanized oh. behind that and create a movement. And exactly what happened, and that's because of social media. We can also there's individuals who've been ostracized from society or oppressed because of certain things, because of the way they love, because of the way they pray, because what they look like and they can find, and maybe they grew up in a small town and and, I don't know, bumfuck Indiana. I'm from Indiana. So I can say that. Um, And they can find (laughs) their community. They can find their holding environment online. They can find people with similar interests online, people who they can connect to. And we all know the value of connection, of connecting with an individual, knowing that you're not some one-off weirdo or knowing that what you believe isn't isn't wrong even if your small town has told you that your entire life you can find hope online on social media so i think it's great for that like right now i can go online and there's probably a bunch of uh, blogs about crocheting mittens and i can learn how to crochet mittens and talk to the leading mitten crocheter in the world if i wanted to that's the beauty of social media you can find that connectedness but then you're right there is this kind of black and white day and night hot and cold right versus left online where if you don't align with me on on one thing, then I'm going to kick you out of my group. And then you create my way. Exactly. You create these echo chambers. There's like Twitter, Instagram, it's Facebook. It's very difficult to actually have a conversation. You put a link out there with a, with a snarky comment and it's, it's polarizing oftentimes. And there's no back and forth. There's not enough back and forth. There's not enough actual communication. It's like, these are my ideas and thoughts. And then someone else throws out their ideas and thoughts and there's no ex- really exchange of information or, or ideas. There's no empathy. Armin, you mentioned if you can't necessarily touch, reach out and touch, see those facial expressions, those hand gestures, physical touch sometimes, those mirror neurons light up. You need that in conversation oftentimes. And, and that's what you get in the real world and the real in real life. And I don't want to say Twitter's not real work. Some people, their whole life is, is built up in social media. So I don't want to say that Twitter isn't real life. It's part of it, certainly. But in the real world, those, those face-to-face interactions, you can have those conversations. You can realize an individual is an individual. And you have to live in the gray. It's not black and white, ultimately. So that's, that's one thing. Um, just building off that, one thing I'm personally worried about with social media is this inability to, ha- to communicate results in people not feeling comfortable expressing themselves. And I feel like society is just getting over the hump where you should feel comfortable being yourself like we're just getting over that hump and now now we're not like it's gone politics aside politics aside it's gone to a point where people don't feel comfortable saying i'm a trump supporter take your emotions out of that statement and just think about that people don't feel comfortable saying i voted for donald trump i'm not saying i did but no that's great man i'm actually really happy that that you you brought this up um this is something that's hugely important to talk about you know, I, I agree. I do think that expressing yourself verbally, you know, has become less comfortable, particularly in open forums. You know, obviously, when a person is there in your same space physically, right? Um, that that's a challenge. But understand that how we got there. Oh, for sure. Is because I think of this kind of way in which we're communicating now, where we're not having these authentic interactions, and where a lot of things are being either misunderstood or misperceived or misinterpreted um, you know, because of the way that we're communicating. Now, I kind of feel like, to your point, we might be at a, at a stage 
where we really have to be thinking about different forms of communication and different forms of expressing ourselves to one another. Because I feel like, honestly, and Tori and I have talked about this a lot, we're sort of at this point where language, you know, particularly excessive use, use of language or misappropriation of language is a big part of the problem in, in how people just use words indiscriminately, almost kind of to attack people or to offend people or to defend in ways that the, the language was never created or, or designed for. And when I say different forms of expression, I mean, you know, uh, just through, I think, things that are, you know, other than a lot of excessive words, you know, either shorter statements that are more empathic or, you know, expressions, you know, that are not so discriminatory, right? You know, like, what's your favorite this? What's your favorite that? You know, things that are like more binding and more value oriented, not necessarily like things that are superficial about people, but things that are more about like how we are on the inside, you know, uh, how we, we function emotionally, spiritually, and the things that, uh, again, go back to like what what we value in life. Those are the, the types of things that we need to be expressing ourselves towards one another around and not necessarily, you know, these this random use of forceful language, yeah. right? It's like trying to connect over like, what is it? What did it feel like being someone's brother? What does it feel like being a mom? Like having these meaningful connections, like sharing an experience with someone yeah. that has been through something similar, Absolutely. and then finding out like th there there are different ways to do things. Oftentimes, um, but I wanted to yeah. Have you have you ever been have you ever been on a camping trip, for example? Right, like you ever been on a on a you know even like a just a, a one day hike with a group of people you maybe don't even know very well. Like you come out of those kinds of experiences just feeling so much more like together and and you know there's kind of this this bonding and unifying experience oftentimes there's not even a lot of words exchanged right but it's just something about just having an experience together where there's a challenge um where you kind of had to see each other in in different formats mm -hmm. um and where you you got to have meaningful uh connections and, and, and meaningful interactions and you know what that you know, reminds me of dr Hose? That. yeah um I don't, I don't know if you guys feel feel this but um like when i'm on long airplane trips and like when i'm leaving jfk and i see someone like let's say I'm, i see someone wearing a green shirt and a, and a yankees hat and i see him and then we i see him like walking through like the airport with me and i see him at the gate and then i'm walking up and down the airplane i see him like three rows ahead of me and then like finally when I see him like he's like three feet on my right waiting for the suitcase I'm like like we have he may not know I've been creeping on him this entire time he he doesn't know of my existence but I'm like wow like that, that was a bond yeah. like so I feel like I feel like that so yeah, that's great that's absolutely. a great example and uh, uh back to the social media thing I just touching upon Dr. Trujillo a big positive about social media is the community and the community can go both ways good and bad like this morning i woke up to a story i woke up to like a twitter post that exploded this this obese girl posted two pictures of her in a bikini saying which one looks better and then apparently like last night she had like 10 followers and then that blew up and she had like like lindsay lohan i got to a point where lindsay lohan retweeted her and <sighs> megan fox was liking oh her saying God. like sweetheart sweetheart oh. don't listen to anyone like you look so sexy in the left one but i would throw out the right one and then you see it on the twitter thread she tweets like, guys, like I had like ten followers yesterday. 
and like I'm only 16 years old I've been battling with like crippling depression like because of my weight like I'm like I forgot what the medical diagnosis was but, like I'm unable to lose weight at a normal rate um I don't know exactly what it is but like I because of that I have like extreme social anxiety I don't have any friends and like and like she had like more comments than all the comments my social media posts have ever had combined mm -hmm. and like she was getting like utmost positive support and she was probably filtering out the bad yeah. ones and like in that type of situation when you're dealing with crippling social anxiety and depression to that extent who's to say that that filtering feature is bad so it's kind of goes both ways well you know yeah and, and i it's interesting that, that it's really interesting because on the one hand you you appreciate the positivity and and you you certainly appreciate you know if, if it's something that was meaningful and helpful for her um and and where there was some sort of um you know emotional benefit uh on the other hand you you do want to also be be careful and cautious about you know how you assess that experience because you know as as a therapist my concern would, would mostly be around her need you know for validation and you know how that all works and you know, if it's just simply, you know, for uplifting and, you know, and she is, is someone that has developed a, a self-confidence and resilience beyond that, you know, I'd probably be fine with it. But if I felt that she needed to have that, if it wasn't, was more than, you know, just a, a want or an extra kind of benefit, but in fact that she needed to have that uh, connectedness just to feel better about herself, then, you know, I, I think uh, there would there would potentially be room for more exploration Absolutely. in terms of what's I going on with her that's so she, you mentioned she was like 16 she was a teenager so that's part of the developmental process where you do need the validation from others and not if someone has social anxiety they're less likely to get that with the friend group at school because they're going to be more shy and more reserved and and you're less likely to get that home so some you have to find validation at some point elsewhere um i think armin dr hose you're absolutely right at some point that the goal is to be able to internalize that and have that validation come from within that you ultimately are going to be able to validate yourself. And if you're able to do that and you're securing yourself, that's going to lead you to wherever you want to go because um, you're not at the mercy of anyone else's praise or validation. So I love the fact that you speak to that, but I think her posting that and that situation, aside of like normal development, Ben, I'm interested in asking you, um, did you grow up with social media, like a smartphone in your hand in high school? I think smartphones came out, what, 2007? My first phone... I think was like a, the Duke. It was like not not a smartphone. Okay. It was like one of those like flip phones. I think I got my first smartphone. I want to say maybe in high schools, but social media definitely was. So, so when I was growing up, social media was more of a cautious thing. It was more of like a well, make sure, like you had like these chat rooms and like you didn't really know who was in there. Um, so it was chat more rooms like, my, like on what it was what, like like, oh, like it was. No, 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 like they're like before social media, there were just like yeah. chat rooms, like online, where like group chats, like oh, yeah, join. But that, was, that was in the AOL, that was in the messenger. 90s, though, man. That, no, that, that was, was like, yeah, that was like a, that, so that, yeah, so that's when yeah. I was a kid. So, like, big thing, like the big social media, I guess, for me was like AIM, AIM, and AOL. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But I think, yeah. I think my, when I was growing yeah, yeah, up, yeah. MySpace was the equivalent of modern day Facebook and modern day LinkedIn, right. Yeah. The reason I bring this up is because we did a podcast on mental health for young athletes. Go check it out. Where we talked about how nowadays 
like kids have cell phones in their hands, smartphones, the internet, social media, anything they want. By the time they're in fifth, fourth grade, sometimes even earlier. And I feel for parents because ultimately sometimes when a kid is allowed and obnoxious like kids are, that's the only thing that's going to calm them down is an iPad or an iPhone. So that, and they kind of get my, addicted yeah. from there. My daughter's had, I got my daughter an iPad when she was six years old, seven years old, something like that. I mean, she's loved it. You know, she uses it primarily for games, you know, like Sims and, mm-hmm. you know, things like that that are, you know, constructive gaming. But, um, but she definitely has like people that she text messages and, you know, she has different friends that she keeps up with. And the reality is, it's funny, like, if you even think about the texting apps for these different, like the Apple, uh, Droid, the, the, the ones that come standard with the phones, I mean, they actually have a lot of social media functions within these messaging applications, like where you can sort of like or love people's comments and you can kind of like, now you have different types of threads yep. that you can create with different social networks and groups. Um, you know, so it, it's all kind of moving in yeah. the same direction. A psychiatrist, is that good or bad? So that's, what do you I want to touch on that because I did a whole, I did a grand rounds about like social media use and the inter, interplay between that and like mental health. And what we notice is like looking at the data when, when smartphones became readily available, I think like in 50% of households, it was around like the, I think the 2007 time period. And for a lot of individuals who were able to have that smartphone in their hands from like freshman year of high school, we talked about those are important developmental years where you're trying on all these different hats. You need that validation from others to kind of figure out like the confidence and who you are as a person. Um, with social media now, you're open up to comparing yourself, not just to your peers, because you naturally compare yourself as like a 14 year old, but now you're comparing yourself to celebrities who've had fillers and lip injections and body augmentations, the Kardashians and so on. And you're you're comparing yourself to people all over the world. So that is a shot to your, who you are as an ego. It's like, like it was, it was good enough to be like the best at something in your high school, but now you're comparing yourself to all these people throughout the world. So I think what we're seeing is, maybe that can stunt your development in certain ways, cause you to be a little less secure in who you are. Your, your identity and who you are isn't as solid because of this, because you're having to compare yourself to so many different people. It kind of delays development only in certain individuals. And we know this because we've seen the rates of anxiety and depression go up in that current 18 to 26 year olds. And I imagine the newer generation will continue to rise. And obviously we have a lot of pandemics and, and, all these issues going on that are going to continue to elevate that. But we're seeing since the implement in smartphones being in the hands of these kids who were freshmen or eighth graders at the time, they're now on average more anxious and more depressed than individuals that are armonized age who didn't have the smartphone until we were in college or out of college. Yeah. And if I can actually speak to that, um, like, so when, when Dr. Trujillo said the 18 and 26 age, Think of me like that is that's my. That's why I wanted to ask you. That's a demographic I re- I represent more or less. Like I'm I coming straight out of college. I wholeheartedly agree. Yes, like the smartphone usage is just addicting, because like like the way I think the way I've seen it work out is that you get a smartphone and then it's addicting because it's all fun, it's games, it's sexy, it's light up, and then it just makes it easier to stimulate your brain than reading and reading was like big activity like 20 30 years ago now no one reads anymore everyone's just like they get their news via like social media which isn't good or bad that's just speaking that there's a study that looked at high school freshmen 
um, followed them for four years, gave them like an ADHD evaluation scale at freshman year and then again at senior year. And they had two separate groups. One group who would log like, I think 20 or more social media electronic type activities per week. And the other group was like less than five of those per week. So the group that had higher social media and electronic engagement, they showed a greater increase in ADHD from freshman year to high school year than the individuals who had less than five like social media engagements. So you're seeing individuals who kind of I believe get that. addicted to these I social that. media. I, I've, they're more likely to look like they have ADHD and they don't necessarily have ADHD. It's just that, yeah. that you get such immediate feedback and immediate validation and gratification from someone liking your post on Instagram. That feels good. That gets your dopamine going. And that's the addiction pathway in your limbic system, your amygdala. They've proven Absolutely. that that can be addictive. So then you become yeah, I'm sure. on That's that. it. Like, and, and it's absolutely. And not only are you getting that, that type of uh, feedback, which is very positive and very uplifting, but that feedback is both variable, right? And it's remitted, right? It's, it's so it's going to come from different places, different sources, and you never really know what's going to come. You know, and that's really the type of system that can create that cycle of addiction, you know, that cycle of, of really need, you know, I need to have. This. Yeah, that opens up a whole so, Pandora's box of social media addiction, video game addiction, <laughs> and so on and so forth that as yeah. a child psychiatrist, we definitely try to turning our attention to for sure. Um, Speaking of uh, video game addiction, I first thing that comes to mind is Fortnite. Like that is addiction. 24 7 and that's just like a constant need for speed mm -hmm. like these games are like five to seven minutes and it's all action-packed then game was over all right let's where yep. we where we landing next boys mm -hmm. um so like like overall like I, like my question to both of you guys is like i'm sure with, with all the cons that we just mentioned with this there are some pros like i i don't know the exact studies but i've heard that like like playing video games increases like your decision making, like your quick decision making, or like your ability to think more analytically, or or maybe not. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if any of that's been proven. I know that, like you know, they give you those brain games on your phones that'll promise you that you'll be quicker. Yeah. It only is specific to that, to the game, or to anything that mimics that. So, if you play enough Fortnite, you're going to get really good and really quick to be able to like, hit someone, build something, shoot someone. I play Warzone sometimes, so you get better yeah. and better at that, like quickness. Right. How's that going to necessarily yeah. translate to to being quicker yeah. to like in a conversation or something? I don't know. Well, how, it makes sense, right? Because it's like with anything else, right? Like playing a sport, you're going to get better at that application, right? It, it's an application based thing. But the sport, so you know, is valuable because of everything we always talk about. You learn that that hard work, physical and mental hard work that you put in, that practice you put in, pays off. So that's ultimately translates off the football field. And if you play a team sport, putting yourself exactly. to the side for the common goal of the team, that translates off the, the field. So you're right. That, that was perfectly put because, you know, really it's, it's not just about playing the sport, right? The sport is a skill set. Um, it's really about the integrity lessons, right? It's about, you know, the, the lessons around, you know, if a team sport, teamwork and, you know, collective responsibility, you know, it's it's about the the, the values that that you know uh, sports brings, mm -hmm. and then the physical conditioning is great for your health. It just makes you feel good. So those are really the things that I think make you a better person through sports. It's not necessarily just being great at that particular skill, you know, because that's just an application. Yeah. 
And I think this is a great conversation. If you guys are interested, check out episode 10. We, we delve kind of deeper into mental health for young athletes. We touch on a lot of these different things, but I certainly appreciate Ben, what you've talked about and brought that, that 18 to 26 year old perspective into the mix. Um, I think that's definitely valuable. Um, cause a lot of things have changed. Like we didn't grow up the same way you did. You were, had a lot more access to different information and it, and it could be used for good. It could be used for bad. Um, but I wanted to, yeah. I wanted to make the transition into, um, our topic today, baseball. We got these two stud professional baseball players on this podcast today that we talked about earlier today. Before we introduce them with a little bit more breadth and a little bit more in depth, let's talk about baseball. This, I mean, should we should be in the middle of a baseball season right now, right? I mean, yeah, it should be in the middle of a midsummer yeah. classics right now. Yeah, it's Shame. crazy, man. Shame we're not around the All Star break. Exactly. We should we should be kind of knowing at this point who who the contenders are. Yeah, and now we're just trying to see if there's actually going to be a season. I, yeah. being myself, am very skeptical. I still uh, I don't believe it until I see it. But nonetheless, baseball will be upon us. And well, I just saw the other day Taiwan just started up their baseball season. They had a packed house. They only have seven, or I think it was six confirmed cases of COVID. A packed and they, house they as a, in like full attendance? Oh, yeah. The fans in the stadiums. Yeah. And it was beautiful no. to see. The thing about it, though, is, yeah, I mean, baseball is one of these sports, though. I, I mean, I feel like you could, you know, pretty much cover up pretty well, wear gloves. I could see you pretty much could, you know, even wear a mask. No, wait, the gloves is not a thing. We don't want to wear gloves because people don't know how to wear gloves. You wear gloves, it's good if you take them off in between like every half hour, but you're touching your face with the gloves, it doesn't do anything, right? That's a nice life lesson for you listeners. Well, I saw on a Twitter a viral video of some old yeah. lady in the supermarket. She was she went to go pick up donuts, but she had gloves on. And what did she do? She She bit the tip of her glove, pulled the glove off with her teeth, and went to pick up the donut with her bare hand, but that's all kinds of uh, mistakes. Oh, no, but that doesn't make sense because she should have had a mask on. If she had a mask on, there's no way she should have been able to access her. Exactly. exactly. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll one-up you, Dr. Trujillo. I was in the Target a few weeks ago, and they were selling masks, and the mask, and there's a sign that says, try me on. Really? Mm. Really. <laughs> wow. All right. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty good. I like that. <laughs> no wonder the cases are going. I remember when Armin and I did the, uh, we did a specific episode on the, the pandemic and what to do to how to control the controllables to minimize anxiety. And that was what it was, that was back in March. And here we are, we're still in the middle of it. Who but, would have thought it would I guess the silver lining is we have baseball starting. Ideally, at the end of the month, we have basketball starting. We have NHL starting. We have MLS starting. MLS started. Oh, MLS started. We have the WNBA started. We have the Women's Soccer League starting. We have all these sports that are are starting up again. And ideally, we can look to like the Premier League, which has been going on for over a month now. So I think it's possible, although we know the cases in the United States are a lot higher than, than elsewhere. Um, but we won't get into that. But I, this podcast is about baseball specifically. It's played outdoors, so I think they can pull it off. I'm hopeful. Um, unfortunately, minor league season had to be canceled. Mm. And we'll get into that. We'll talk to our, our two minor leaguers that we have on the podcast today about that. It's well, tough. 
and it's it's definitely about baseball but you know we, we have to always make sure that our our flavor is infused into every narrative every message that we have and and so it's about baseball but it's about how the principles of self-awareness mindfulness um, appreciation through gratitude and you know of course how those things create resilience um, you know through the practice and preparation that that creates a what we call mental fitness it's a thing for baseball too oh, right nice. just like in all sports it's a thing in baseball and we have these two guys today that are pitchers you know so yeah. they're they're you know the, the they're the guys that all eyes uh, are are going to be on yeah. just like we talk about you know quarterbacks and you know point guards and and ball like these are guys that mostly have the ball in their hands and they and they really can control the game in different ways yeah. so we have guys that are going to be able to get some real insight into how mental fitness works on the mound yeah absolutely I'm glad you brought that up because it's interesting um, baseball starting off with baseball is a team sport. But there's a lot of downtime in baseball, a whole lot of downtime. And, there, and That's you can the be, beauty of baseball. Yeah you, downtime, can be out, yeah. yeah. you could be out there in left field and, and not see a ball yep. the entire game quite possibly. Chewing some sunflower seeds in big league chew and yep. just chilling. Yeah. Chatting with the fans, you know what? Like, so what happens when you have all this downtime and you're not actually physically doing something? You have room for the mind to go any which way. So I think for be good and bad things. Yeah, exactly. I think for baseball specifically, the mental fitness is huge. It's almost I almost compare it to to an individual sport. Not necessarily, I guess, position players, but pitchers specifically, because pitchers, like you said before, they're out there on the mound all alone. Obviously they have this great battery with their catcher. But we the previous podcast we did with, with Cyrus Pattinson, the, the boxer out of Great Britain, there's a lot of kind of comparisons I see with an individual sport because they step on that mound, like you mentioned, Armin, all eyes are on them. The ball's literally in their hands and they could be out there the whole game on that mound. And then they, in between innings or, or when their team's at bat, especially if, if they're in the American league, they're just sitting there on the bench with their thoughts and with their emotions of whatever happened in the inning before. So the, the being a pitcher, that's such a unique thing. And I mentioned in the introduction, all the pitchers I played with in high school, that, a little bit of head cases. We had some head cases, very interesting personalities. So this interview we had is extremely interesting. We had to bring some pitchers on. I feel like we've brought in a lot of uh, interesting athletes today, but but pitchers might might uh, take the cake. Yeah, no, it's it's a really unique position, and and you know I, I was kind of um, really intrigued too by the, the part of the discussion with these guys where they talk about what it's like to be a starting pitcher uh, versus a, you know, a closer, um, you know, and kind of the, the difference in mentality and, and how the starters definitely always want to be closers. I mean, they always want to, you know, close out that game if they can, but, you know, some guys just aren't necessarily able to, to kind of co- go through that grind, you know, and you have, you know, some guys that are, are built to pretty much go all in over you know the course of you know one or two innings and then mm-hmm. other guys that are are kind of more like able to stay at a, a steady pace you know for mm-hmm. maybe six to nine innings and so how sprinters versus marathon kind of runners like dichotomy exactly you know mm-hmm. and and the balance of forces on, on any team is what's going to really make the difference right? yep. 
that, Dr. Ho. It's very common for a relief pitcher to have started his, his career as a starting pitcher. And like that, and that was their initial goal. Like Mariano Rivera, one of the best closers of all time. No, he is the best closer of all time. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Um, Aroldis Chapman, the current closer for the New York Yankees, yeah. both tr- started out as starting pitchers. And those are just two names off the top of my head. And they didn't make it as a starting pitcher. But then I think which is, what's so important about sports, especially in this, this case, that they were with the right coaches that knew to look out and say, okay, you don't have what it takes to be a starter but you have what it takes to be an amazing reliever. And that's just like that resilience and knowing to keep grinding and grinding and saying, okay, I, I know I got the stuff. I just need to find out which direction and take it in mm-hmm. and not quitting, you know? Yeah. Resilience is something that we're going to keep harping on. And the two individuals we brought in today, AJ Dean and Dylan Hoffman have shown resilience in order to make it uh, to get drafted, which both these individuals did. You have to have resilience. And in order to make the professional leagues, the MLB, it, that might be the hardest sport to make it in. Like, there's how many rounds in major league? Like dra- Twenty uh, plus. Yeah. Jeez. No more. Than, yeah. I think there's there's forty plus maybe. Um, because so let me break this down a little bit. So AJ Dean. So he they're both uh, minor leaguers in the San Diego Padres system organization. That's how they know each other. That's why they came on the the show together. Um, but AJ Dean he. He went to University of Illinois at Springfield. He was the first All-American pitcher in that, their school's history. And he was a career wins leader at that school. He finished his career with a 22-1 and record. And he was drafted in the 18th round. Pretty and, impressive. Yeah. <laughs> drafted in the 18th That's round back in 2019. So he's, he's working his way up, up the ranks. How with, many rounds do they normally have in, 40. in baseball? Yeah, so... I mean, 18th is a bat. Pretty no, good. No, not at all. Not at all. And then, and then he, he's joined by Dylan Hoffman, who oh, wow. he was also in the San Diego Padres organization. Unfortunately, due to, due to COVID, and we're going to touch on this, they're not going to have a season. They're not going to be able to pay these guys. So they had to do massive cuts to players. So unfortunately, he was cut by the Padres organization earlier this year. Free agent currently. No doubt he'll make it back. But he was drafted by the, the Padres in the 39th round. And he's out of uh, Waldorf, um, which is a small school in Iowa, uh, where he's also a pitcher. So they're both aiming to become starting pitchers in the MLB. And that, that's difficult, man. Uh, Dr. Trujillo, I just want to say, when you think of resilience, after listening to this episode, you're going to think of Dylan Hoffman. Just a little, little, ba- just a little background. Mother. Cut from his high school team. Didn't play D1 baseball. Corona took a turn for the worse, and because of Corona, he gets cut by the Padres. What's happening while he's got cut by the Padres? Shoulder surgery. The absolute worst thing for a pitcher. And now I follow him on Instagram. You know what he's doing every single day? He's grinding at the gym, pulling two-dayers. Grind doesn't stop. He has so many excuses, and he uses none of them. That's it. That's it right there. Hoffman, resilience. And you'll be able to tell. Today, listen to this. And I, and I think that you're right. I mean, the way that you get through that kind of situation, those those various situations, and come out on top, is with having resilience, right? And resilience is what we believe is a, a product of having you know, strong mental fitness. And all the things we try to promote that we uh, will continue to promote are all about how to get closer to to 
to resilience, you know, how to become a resilient performer, how to be someone that can bounce back from injury, how to be someone that can bounce back from a trade that you didn't expect, from being selected in the, the draft round that you, you thought you should have. You know, these are things that can really be difficult, you know, for high-level performers Make to, or to break. deal with and to go through. Um, but you just bounce back, you know, it's just like with the, the pitcher. We're going to talk about all this today. You may have a bad inning, right? And you're going to have some time to think about it, but you have to let it go when you go into the next inning, really even into the next, the next hitter, the next batter, you have to be able to just forget about what happened before and just lock back in. Yep. And that's mental. They call that sports yeah. amnesia. Oh, yeah. So I want to touch on – I'll tease the interview a little bit, but I want to touch on specific things these guys do, which shows that they're resilient. Ben, you mentioned that uh, Dylan was cut sophomore year from his right. high school team. Both of these guys, they self-identify as late bloomers. They had Both of them had to go to the smaller college route, uh, but both of them got drafted and, and made it into the minor league system. Both of them really touch on self-awareness as keys to them being resilient, keys to them being able to, like you said, have that sports amnesia, being able to forget about that last inning, know the situation, because that's your pitcher up on that mound, like you mentioned. You have to have that relationship with your catcher. You got to know his strengths and weaknesses. You got to know the batter. You got to know the scouting report, their strengths and weaknesses. You got to know the situation and the inning. And you also have to have that short-term memory because if you had a bad inning previously or one bad pitch, it could be make or break. So you have to be aware of how well you can handle those situations. What are the coping skills or what are the things you do to, to bring that emotional temperature down in order to pitch your best or like, I think AJ Dean mentioned sometimes you can utilize that that emotion, that anger that you feel when maybe you 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 face a batter the first time around and he goes yard off you. He hits a fucking dinger. Maybe you use that motivation. This guy hit a home run off me in the second inning as fuel to to strike him out maybe in the next go around. But you have to, you have, to have self-awareness to realize, am I a pitcher who can pitch well when my emotional thermometer is high, when I'm feeling angry or when I'm That's feeling right upset or are you a pitcher that needs to have that sports amnesia like ben said and have a clean slate with each pitch or with each inning aj touches on the fact that he he brings that, that energy from a previous encounter with the batter to the mound the next time because he pitches better when he has a little bit of emotion to, on the mound when he brings a little bit of that emotional intensity on the mound and that's that's in stark contrast to the interview we had with cyrus the boxer last episode where he mentions where he gets in the ring and he's just going based off practice and he tries to strictly remove emotions from the equation. So it, it is a right. very interesting conversation we had today. Very interesting. So speaking of boxing versus baseball, you know, you talk about an individual sport versus a team sport. And, you know, I think about how with Cyrus, the boxer, his attitude was, you know, having uh, guys around me that could potentially make mistakes, that's not something that I was really comfortable with. You know, I wanted to be the one that dictated the outcome. And if guys around me couldn't be on my level, then I needed to go and do individual sport in order to show that, uh, you know, I don't really need anyone else, basically. I can do this on my own. With, you know, these guys, they talk more about trusting their teammates, right? And, and trusting the guys around them. And they actually had a high level of appreciation. And I was surprised to see how they spoke so highly of the guys around them and how much they depend on those guys to do what they do. It's easy to look at a pitcher because he has the ball in his hands all the time 
and because so much depends on what what he or she does and say okay well you know they're going to be more self-centered or self-serving but in fact um you know those these particular gentlemen uh you know they they had nothing but but really high praise for the men in this field that that back them and support them and have their back so that was cool to see too and just just before we move on um one thing i was thinking about was just back to what dr trujillo was saying about andrew aj aj dean being able to channel his emotions that itself is such mental fitness like that it's that's so you need to be so mentally strong to be able to acknowledge okay i'm feeling angry why am i feeling angry because this guy hit a bomb off me and you know like you think back to the kevin brown who's a pitcher for the yankees who was so fucking pissed that he played poorly he punched a wall broke his right hand broke his hand couldn't pitch and he was he was one of the yankees best pitchers manager joe torrey was like like it was well known how angry he was at him but being able to acknowledge how your emotions being able to acknowledge them and channeling them the right way in a socially acceptable way. It's a lot easier said than done. And I want, and I think that that's something that a lot of our listeners could, could really relate to. I think everyone has a bad day and like they start acting out. Like I think everyone has, you know, came home after a rough day and like their roommate or their parent or sibling was like, what's going on? And you're like, nothing, leave me alone. And you're so irritable. And you don't even realize it. But just being able to like acknowledge, okay, this is my emotion, but how can I channel it? the better yeah exactly and it's it's tough so you have to be aware whether or not you can you can you use that negative emotion that anger that pain as fuel to the fire in order to accomplish your goal or can you not and that's is that going to distract you from your goal and if that's the case you have to learn how to lower and get rid of that emotion you have to learn how to distract yourself from that emotion cope with that emotion so I'm glad that our people that we talked to today have, have brought a different perspective to it. And it's, it's so fascinating. Um, and I think we, we mentioned adopt a minor leaguer earlier and this podcast is brought to you by that. And the reason that's important to us is because the minor league season was canceled. These guys aren't getting paid. Not only that, these guys, they don't really get paid all that much depending on where you're at located, whether it's rookie ball all the way up to triple a, it's either $400 a week, or seven hundred dollars a week, so that ranges from like three thousand to fifteen thousand for the five season. No, so in COVID, obviously caused cuts to a lot of these individuals, and it's hard to make it to the MLB. Only twenty-five guys are on a team, and there's thirty MLB teams. And I have some statistics here from Baseball America. There's fewer than eighteen percent of all signed MLB draft draftees, which are the two guys we have on today, end up making it to the major leagues. And that number drops below 10% for the late round selections. So it's tough, man. It's it, just because wow. you're drafted. It's, it's like yeah, getting drafted I mean, in the second round in the NBA draft. They're even more difficult. Yes. It's, you got to really want it, man. If you're, if you're going to go through this, uh, this kind of experience, man, you have to, you have to really, it, it has to be a total sacrifice. So, wow. Hats off. Mad respect for those guys. Yeah. I can't wait to, for you guys to hear this interview, but since it's episode 42, I think we have to touch on Jackie Robinson a little bit. We talked about him, obviously, in previous podcasts. Uh, the Trailblazer, probably one of the, if not the top Trailblazer in sports, um, one of the top, um, because he broke the color barrier in baseball. And not only that, he was a legendary baseball player, and he was an advocate and just all around a, a not only a great baseball player, 
not only the first African-American baseball player to play in the major leagues, but he was a great person and he continued to push forward and fight for equality and justice for all something that we're obviously still fighting for. Oh man. Yeah. It couldn't, couldn't be a better time to, uh, to resurrect the legacy of the great Jackie Robinson. He was a, a model uh, of social justice and you know, social reform for not just baseball, but for you know, sports in general. Um, and as you said, he was a model on the baseball diamond as well as off the field as well. And you know, that's, that's really um, one of the cornerstones of, of our program in Sports Psych and D's is developing athletes and you know performance professionals in general as not just skilled performers but also as skilled people and you know and, and people with, with high character and high integrity that uh, can make a difference in all aspects of life right not just in the sport but in their communities with their families and just kind of being ambassadors for you know doing the right things you know hard work and and, and, and you know, strong values. I, I love that the MLB has paid a lot of respects to him. They, there's the, they retired his number. They have Jackie Robinson Day where everyone wears the number 42 that wants to. That. This usually happens in April, so I'm hoping that they figure out a way to still sneak that in there for this shortened season. Um, but, yeah, when you, when you think about what's going on today, we still have a long, long way to go. Um, I can't even imagine what the obstacles someone like Jackie Robinson faced when he he just went out to do his job. Um, And the fact that he was able to do it, become an MVP, win championships, it's quite, it's, I can't, it's unimaginable, quite frankly. And I think that just speaks to how mentally fit he was, how strong of a player, baseball player he was, how good he was. And how he was able to just kind of zone everything out and just play a game. And it it speaks to how sports, baseball, and different things where once you get on that diamond, once you get on that field, once you step onto that court, nothing else really matters. And you can really focus on your your craft. And and you're you're seen as an equal initially. I think in sports, you you can be seen as an equal. um, And that's why that's what we want to, to be seen off the court and off the field as well. That's what we want for everyone is to be seen as an equal. You know, so in June, there was this tipping your cap phenomenon, which was attributed to this phenomenon called tip your cap, which was a campaign directed by Bob Kendrick. This was through from 1920 to 1960. And this was really just designed to bring recognition and respect to the great players in the Negro Leagues. And that those that made it to the majors and those who unfortunately didn't. And what was really nice for me was, you know, this past summer, amidst everything going on, a lot of baseball players, presidents, President Barack Obama too, and really people from all over the world sent videos of them tipping their cap, giving a little speech about what the Negro League meant to them. And, you know, CeCe Sabathia spoke really well about how important people like Jackie Robinson were for him and other black major league baseball players. And what they, yeah, what they meant for them. And fun fact, Jackie Robinson was the first Rookie of the Year in Major League Baseball history. The Rookie of the Year award was established in 1947, and Jackie Robinson won it. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. That's great trivia. I love yeah. that. That's good stuff, man. Yeah, I mean, 
you know, it's like we have this uh, this post on, on our Instagram page where we highlight the the recent story in in racing in NASCAR involving Bubba Wallace and how there was a noose uh, left behind in uh, the garage area where he maintains his car, and you know there was this you know, huge. Um, out, you know, outpouring of support for him, you know, thinking of this might have been a, a racially motivated incident. And it turns out that apparently, you know, this particular uh, prank or practical joke wasn't necessarily targeting him, um, or maybe, maybe it was, but it wasn't done at, the, at that particular time. Apparently, it was placed there a year ago. So the decision was made to to kind of let it go and, and not really look at it as being any sort of uh, you know, hate crime, but you know we think about that uh, and that experience and just you know the huge uh, public backlash and and the outpouring of support that that he had, and we realized that you know this is stuff that that guys like Jackie Robinson were experiencing every day, um, you know back in you know the forties fifties you know, 60s before we really had strong civil rights legislation. And, you know, it just kind of further goes to show the, the level of resilience these guys had to have had in order every day, but still be able to focus, you know, on their craft and still perform at a high level, despite having all these outside distractions and all these people that really didn't want them to be there, um, you know, still able to prove people wrong. and, and like I said, put their all into their performance. And that's what being a high level mentally fit athlete is all about. Absolutely, man. And, and baseball is America's pastime. And, and Jackie Robinson arguably is the most famous baseball player of all time. I'd probably put him side by side with Babe Ruth. So yeah, we got to pay respects to the legends of, of the sport. And I'm excited to have Dylan Hoffman and AJ Dean on, on the podcast today. That interview is coming up here shortly. Both of these guys, it's in their blood. Baseball is in their blood. They'll speak to it. Um, they both had family members play in the major leagues. Uh, Dylan Hoffman's uncle just so happens to be Trevor Hoffman, one of the, the best closers of all time, probably maybe second behind Mariana Rivera. Um, I'm excited to have these guys on here. Um, hopefully we can continue to have athletes from different sports. Um, but today's all about baseball. And I love the sport. That's, that's my, that was my first true love of all sports. That was the sport um, I played the most. Um, so I'm just happy to have these guys on to share their experiences. And like I said, being a pitcher, that's, that's, that's weird. I was never a pitcher. I think I pitched maybe three innings in my life. So I hope you guys enjoy this. And, and they're going to talk more about just more than just about baseball. They're going to talk about their journeys and their stories. And yeah, let's get into it. Let's do it. Before we start, we gotta know um, what's oh, yeah. your hype song right now. <laughs> Depends. I guess when I'm working out, I like uh, Eminem and Lil Wayne. I mean, I'm very old school. Very oh old yeah, school. Eminem will make you run through a wall. And I, I love Eminem. Yeah, I wouldn't call that old school, man. I listen to Eminem when I work out for sure. Like that's probably the number that's one. That's who. Guy yeah, person that's to. who Armin and I grew up with. Eminem, Lil Wayne. Tupac, Shiggy. In fact, he has that one, what was that one track by Eminem? 
till I collapse. Yeah, oh yeah. That is my That's workout. number one. That's, That's number one. one. That yeah. one and lose yourself. Lose yourself? That's a good one. Lose yourself. Hell yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. What about you, AJ? Oh man, that's hard for me. I listen to so much different types of music. Um, if I was going for hype music, I'd probably go with like my walkout song from last year, Travis Scott, uh, Sicko mm-hmm. Mode. Nice. All right. Yeah. That must be awesome to have a walkout song. That's what I was about to say. Are you, do you hit or are you? I thought you guys were both pitchers. No, oh, yeah, we up. still have songs though. Oh, okay. You guys, when you go out to the mound, you still have walk up songs. Yeah. All right. Nice. In trouble for touching, touching bats. <laughs> All right, so we got some good taste in music here. So let's see, where do you, where should we start, Dr. Hose? Well, we should really start with kind of getting to know what these guys, um, you know, their inspirations are for having gone into, you know, the sport of baseball. And I assume you guys probably started out as kids, right? Yeah. Yeah, I started at three. At three? Yeah. Holy shit, man. That's cool. Well, I mean, you know, like obviously at some point along the way, you know, you, you had to determine what you wanted to do for a career. Um, and I'm sure you guys have many different skills and talents. Like what was it about that particular thing, that sport that was like, I want to, I want to go for this. This is what I want to do. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Dylan, go ahead. Uh, yeah. Uh, ever since I was a kid, I wanted to play ball. Um, it runs my family, obviously, but I, I really had a, a lot of interaction and it was just tough for me just because I've always had the, the eyes on me and I never really, growing up, I never really saw it that way. I kind of play ball and not, not care. I didn't really, wasn't forced to play baseball is what I'm, what I'm happy. I'm happy. I feel like if it was forced on me, I would stop falling in love with it. And, uh, Break in high school, I uh, got cut sophomore year. Never really grew until my senior year, five four, buck, buck fifty. But wow. I never really grew until. Uh, I can, it looks. It looks like your your sitting height is five four right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, I'm a twin. That's wild. The same exact way. We both were tiny. And grew grew a So it it definitely had a lot of like impact on me wanting to play because I took a break from that after being cut. Made me, made me depressed. Made me kind of just, I, I mean, I had started, which was fine, but obviously I didn't really want to do that. I wanted to be on the field and it, it hurt, hurt knowing that they, uh, I wasn't good enough at the time to play. And I think one of the bigger reasons why I wanted to play in college because of the, the coach. I think he kind of motivated. It's like a Michael Jordan type story. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So when you got, I'm curious to know about that. When you got cut, did you feel like that was the right decision? Do you feel like they they got it right in terms of your talent level at the time, or do you feel like it was kind of like maybe you you, you didn't perform to the level that you knew you could? You know, um, it was it was tough. I mean, I no one wants to be cut, especially at that age. You kind of it, it just hurt, I guess. It, and I feel for a lot of guys, the school I went to was pretty good at baseball. And actually a lot of guys, a lot of guys got cut every year and they actually ended up going to rival schools and starting for four years on varsity and stuff. And it cool stories. I mean, I, I never really wanted to do that because I, I played basketball four years and I did track. I tried volleyball and I was always active and I love that. But 
obviously not playing baseball in high school definitely had a toll on me mentally and seeing the aspect of what I can do in the future of it. So you, you played more than just baseball growing up. Yeah. That sometimes is a divisive uh, stance, especially in a game like baseball that's highly specialized in skill. Some people say you should just focus on that solely, but I think there's a new wave of people saying you should play as many sports as possible, become well-rounded. What was the part of your decision process to continue to play like every sport? Um, honestly, my parents never really, my dad never really forced me to do anything I didn't want to do. He, he was super, super okay with me trying new things, trying new, new sports and I mean, growing up, I played beach volleyball for fun, and when I got cut from uh, from baseball, I just kind of took the opportunity to, to uh, play that, and then I did that my junior year. Then senior year, I decided, because I was tiny at, at the time, so I figured I can run pretty good, so I did track and field, and I, I went to uh, CIF for, for the high jump, believe it or not, which was back nice. in my prime. <laughs> what, what is CIF? Uh, it's the the playoffs for high school sports. Right on. So you're successful in a lot of different sports. What uh, attracted you to the most to baseball? What brought you back to baseball? Uh, Just had a passion for it. Loved watching it. Loved playing it. Never was the best hitter. So I I definitely like pitching a lot more. Um, But I don't know. It's just just the fact that I I grew up with it and I've always wanted to play it. And uh, being told told I couldn't play from uh, my high school coach, it's not that it, it bothered me. It just kind of more mentally I wanted to prove him wrong, prove other people wrong. And so I graduated and then it took me two years to play college ball after that. I played in a summer ball out in LA actually. And then um, a coach saw me and asked me if I wanted to play. And I just decided why not. And that started my whole, whole baseball career. Oh man. So you grinded hard. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, there's a lot on the way, a lot a lot to do within it. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine it took a lot of resilience and perseverance and hard work. Um, but like you said, uh, baseball is kind of in your DNA, so. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, okay, that's a good story. Yep. Happy how it all played out. Cool. And, and uh, we'll, have to touch, we'll have to touch more on that, that journey. Um, what, are you, what about you, AJ Dean? What, so is, you go by AJ Dean? Uh, yeah, that, Andrew Dean, all, all kinds of stuff. Okay, just, <laughs> right on. Yeah. So uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about what uh, what uh, got you into baseball. Well, I started when I was three. Um, I kind of ran in my family as well. My uh, family member is actually Dizzy Dean, if you know who that is. Yeah, wow. And uh, he he's in the Hall of Fame for the St. Louis Cardinals. Oh. oh. But um, distant family. But um, I started playing when I was three just because I loved it. When I was a kid, I always watched it. I was around it. So I just wanted to play all the time. I grew up playing multiple sports, um, baseball, basketball, football, the ran track, did it all. But um, when I got to high school, I decided after my freshman year that my future, if I wanted to play professional sports, would definitely be in baseball. So I had to make that decision for myself and just focus on that. And uh, I was kind of like Dylan. Uh, my my coach is kind of a hardo, so mm-hmm. he uh, he was very strict on me. And then my after my freshman year, I played a little bit of varsity in a tournament. And then uh, my sophomore year, I kind of bounced around JV and varsity, but I didn't play as much on varsity. So I asked to stay on JV until like playoff time. 
And then I uh, was also very tiny my first two years of high school. I was like five three, five four, And uh, I hit like a six-inch to a foot growth spurt into my junior year. Got super goofy, but I ended up growing into my body. And I was about six foot at that time. And then I finally started growing into my body, throwing harder. And uh, I was a two-way as well. I hit two-hole, played center field. So it was awesome. And we were pretty good. Where'd you grow up? Uh, Alvin, Texas. I went to Nolan Ryan's high school, actually. Okay. I imagine they're pretty good at baseball as well. Yeah. <laughs> I had uh, him to look up to. And then I had uh, Nathan Mivaldi went there a few years before me. So, And then Jordan Stevens, he's a AAA guy for the White Sox right now as well. So pretty cool. All right. So we got we got two, it sounds like two late bloomers, but two two guys here that are have baseball in their in their DNA and part of their legacy. So you guys are both relief pitchers currently, correct? Yeah. Yeah, I guess. I did both in rookie ball, so I don't really <laughs> know yet. So yeah, tell us. Tell us what what do you like what are you getting like scouted for or what do you and what do you prefer? Uh, I'd prefer to start uh, my Every year in college, I threw like 100 innings. So, okay. And then I, I, I threw 100 innings my senior year, and I threw about 40 for rookie ball and single A this last year. So, I threw a lot. Nice. All right. So, you're, you're ready to go right off the top. <laughs> you just out of curiosity, because I, you know, yeah, we don't get a chance to talk to pitchers much. Um, so, this is pretty cool. Like, what would you say is the, the difference in terms of mentality? between being a starting pitcher, a relief pitcher, like a, you know, kind of middle innings guy, and then like a closer? I think there's actually a pretty big difference in, in between them all. I think uh, starters, you kind of have to obviously pace yourself a lot more. So, I mean, when I used to start in college, I would do a lot fastball change up heavy for the first couple uh, innings. And then I would start mixing in the uh, – curveball and the slider and then I went to relief and it was a big difference I mean I felt like I could just right off the starting gate I can just go 100% and just get get what I need to do to get get the job done and uh I feel like that's the same thing as a as a closer I feel like you have one inning two innings if you're lucky to get out there and, and get the job done and it's all or nothing at that point I mean you're there to win the game I mean I mean everyone's there to win the game but as a closer that's your your specialty yeah and a starting pitcher would you say that like their mentality is always to like I just want to finish this game get a complete game or is it like are they more like guys that was always me for sure <laughs> or but but I imagine there are probably guys too that are like almost like man I can go six seven innings but then I need, I'm going to need somebody to come in here and finish this yeah stamina yeah. plays a role yeah, without a doubt. My mentality as a starter, I always wanted to, to finish the game. I mean, yeah. that's just my competitive nature, though. I never wanted to be taken out of it. I always wanted to be the one to, to get the job done. I have a question for you guys. Um, as a reliever, what's the mentality like when you get the call? I mean, it's like in the middle of the, middle of the inning, and it's like a base is loaded, no outs, jam. <laughs> and the, pitch, like the manager just calls you in there, and he's like, all right, good luck. Like, are you trying to go out? Are you trying to get out of that jam unscathed? Or are you saying, all right, like chances are I'm going to give up a run, maybe two. Let's just, let's just try to get an hour. Do you take like, like what's, what's your approach for that situation? 
like how much you run. Definitely depends on like how the lead from you to the other team is. Like if you have a three on lead, you can give up a run, get the three outs and move on, you know. But if you go in, bases loaded, tied ball game, then you have to give everything you can to like get out the entire situation. Yeah, I think the high intensity uh, situations like that are what make the game fun. And I definitely agree with Dean on that. All right. So I want to say, so let me rephrase what I said earlier. We have two starting pitchers here with us today. So, and <laughs> I wanted to ask in during those like high intensity situations, say you're in a jam, you're in a tough spot. Like, what do you guys, is there any like, coping skills or any tricks that you guys do to just stay in the moment and limit the distractions? I'd say for sure. Um, my biggest thing to help me when I was in college if I got into a sticky situation, I would just block out everything. I wouldn't even think about people being on base or anything like that. I would just focus on getting the hitter out and moving on, you know. But you also get, like, at least myself, whenever I have bases in scoring position, runners in scoring position, I don't even know what I'm talking about. Like, you bear down more. You dig deeper and you get yourself out of situations so you can keep going. Because if you don't, you're getting pulled. So, Yeah, I agree. It's it really just comes down to the whole uh, intensity at, at that point as well. I mean, I feel like if you're trying to get the outs, you want to attack them right away. I mean, for me, I, I take a deep breath. I, I try to slow myself down a little bit because if I start getting antsy, then I feel like the batter has the advantage and he'll he'll see the weakness. He'll see me trying to get on the mound quick and get wow. over it. So I my my routine is I I take a deep breath and I like to slowly just get, get myself prepared. So do you do that deep breath regardless of the situation or is that just, you just do that when things kind of get a little bit more intense? Uh, when things get more intense, I mean, it, it's always different. I feel like when, when I need to, and I, when I have total control, I'll speed it up. Cause I mean, at the end of the day, pitchers are in control. There's no there's stopwatch on a uh, baseball game. Not yet, at least. How much studying yeah. goes into not. the process in terms of, like, knowing the batters, you know, and knowing their kind of, you know, I guess the things that they do that are maybe, like, you know, kind of, like, you know, giveaways, you know, or the things that maybe you can learn about them that would make you more effective? At, at, at throwing throwing at them like is is that a big part of the process or is it just you know go up there and just give it all you got no matter what uh no i i think it's a very important actually when i my senior year when i started uh in iowa i always had a notebook on me and i would always make notes and what the pit what the batter did so i know next time i face him it won't happen again yeah chess match yeah I agree with that. Um, at my college chat, I loved pitching game two. And I, my teammates always gave me crap for it. But I did it so I could watch the hitters for a game and see them like three or four bats and find like their strengths and weaknesses. And then when I face them game two, I'd throw to my strengths first. But then I would throw to their weaknesses as well. So that definitely helps you with your success rate. That's great. So I know that being a pitcher, it's kind of, we, we've interviewed a couple offensive linemen and in football, and that's like a highly like specialized skill position. And I feel like being a pitcher baseball is almost a, 
equivalent or well, more so a quarterback probably. But anyways, I feel like there's so much preparation that goes into being a pitcher. I know that you guys have to report months earlier than everyone else. And my limited experience in playing high school baseball, I always knew the pitchers were, they're kind of always off doing their own thing. It's almost, they're their own unit. They're their own team. But when you guys, I think the unique, most unique thing is when you step out there and you're on the mound, all the attention's on you, obviously in the batter, but you're almost in your own headspace. I guess, how do you, and you guys kind of spoke to this a little bit earlier. Um, how do you deal with like the highs and lows being out there on the mound? How often do you utilize your infielders, your teammates? Yeah. How do you kind of deal with the ebbs and the flows of a baseball game, especially being a starter if you're out there the entire game? I think it, again, it's just, you can't control the uncontrollables and you have to be able to trust your teammates. I feel like if you're on the mound and you're thinking, Oh man, Johnny left field is about to make an error if I hit it or if he hits it to him. So I have to avoid that and, make them go off of like you can't control that you just have to pitch pitch the best you can and if it's an error it's an error you can't you can't blame the teammates I mean baseball is a hard sport it, it's not easy for anyone and the only thing that make it makes it harder is yourself how much do uh, your teammates because you guys are the leaders and you're kind of the, the defensive leaders if you will like how much do your, your teammates look to you guys to actually like really lead in terms of like being the vocal leaders in the locker room and, and being the guys that really set the tone generally for the team. Yeah, that's a hard one. Um, I never even thought of it like that because I, I rely on my defense a lot and I love that they play behind us because we would not be good without them. That's so true. But, uh, my last two years playing, I love, my teammates like always saying that they looked up to me and like how I worked hard and stuff like that. So when your teammates can trust you, they'll play better for you as well. So it's kind of like a vice versa thing. You throw well for them, they play well for you and it all works out. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, I agree. If you don't have faith in your uh, defense, then why would they have faith in you pitching for them? So I feel like it's a, it's a relationship you need to have. You can't just, uh, go about baseball without people behind you. Speaking to the relationships with your teammates, what about that, that bond with you and your catcher? <laughs> the battery. It's awesome, man. You get close with them fast too. And if you don't, you have trust with your catcher, then not, it's not going to work out. Yeah, I agree. It's a, uh, it's a brotherhood. I think you, you have to have it in order to, um, to be successful because I mean at the end of the day he's the one calling the calling the shots mm -hmm. and he's the one that's framing your pitch so if you guys have a bad relationship you better better pray he's a nice nice player because if not then he's gonna make it hard for you to uh get strikes how do you know man like how, how does a pitcher know like or or pitcher and catcher that dynamic like how does it determine all right man we got to throw this like curveball we got to throw this this slider, we got to throw this fastball. Like moment to moment, you know, every obviously every at bat is a is is a you know a new opportunity. But every 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 pitch, right, is a new opportunity. Man, how is it? Is it is it just kind of based on the tendencies of, of that that batter? Um, is it based on the moment? Is it? Based on yeah, it. It comes down to what, what Dean was saying, how he doesn't like pitching game one, 
how he, he likes to see the batter. I think that's what it comes down to because that's why I like to take notes um, because there's it's like a time and place for everything. You, you don't want to throw a fastball down the middle on a 3-0 count. Yeah. I mean, even though you might have to because it's yeah. uh, you're down in the count. But I think if you trust your catcher, I think everything's going to be fine. Um, usually the catcher has a good sense of what he wants to call. But, like, I, I rarely, rarely call off. I, I always want to trust the catcher because I feel like if you call him off, then maybe he feels like you don't trust him. And, I mean, it could lead to, to more. But, I mean, for the most part, catchers aren't really that, that petty. Usually they'll, they'll be okay with it. And it goes, just goes back to the whole having a good relationship. But it's a good point. My thing with catcher relationships is, uh, yeah, they definitely have to feel like you trust them. And I think they see way more than we do. Uh, they're directly right there, and they call every single game. So I've never been a big call-off unless I'm not feeling it. And, like, if I'm in a 3-2 count and he calls something, and I'm like, that's not going to be a strike. I'm going to shake it. But other than that, I pretty much just throw what they think is going to be a good pitch. Yeah, they have to know you too. They have to understand like how you pitch. Oh yes. Because if they don't understand like what your best pitch is, yeah, how are they exactly. going to give you the right recommendation? Yeah, they have a huge responsibility. We talk a lot about communication in, in our sports, like in these organization, and you know, communication we we believe is kind of the key to confidence building with team dynamic. And I've always been so fond this dynamic between catcher and, and pitcher in terms of how that communication happens because it's almost like code language right it's like uh they're signing like sign language you're kind of doing the what is this <laughs> i've always like wondered what that stuff was but it's so important <laughs> given signs <laughs> it's so important and i think it's you're right I mean, trust is is so essential to that relationship and even though you're not vocally co yeah. communicating because you can't hear each other obviously with all the crowd noise um, you have this other way of communicating that somehow works. And it's yeah. really cool. Yeah, signs are definitely important. I mean, Astros, you can just look at them. They they thought it was that important enough to uh, want to cheat. So. Oh, man. What do you guys, what do you guys thoughts Dean's on that? A, Dean's a big Astros fan, so I just like you. Know, <laughs> uh, oh, that's funny. <laughs> was that heartbreaking? Or, nah. Or do you feel I mean, you're, you're cool with it? I mean – I've played baseball my whole life, and as a pitcher, you play, like, every five days. So, I mean, I've always been a person that sits there and tries to steal signs constantly and stuff. And I don't think they're the only team that's trying to do stuff like that. Yeah. Um, Definitely not. Oh, so. Definitely yeah. not. They're the only team that got caught. So Yeah. There's a lot of speculation. I have a question. I, think, I have a question I think a lot of our fans are actually interested in. At least I know I'm interested as a baseball fan my whole life. Um, what's – what do you guys talk about on the mound during mound visits and during pitching changes when you're all huddled up there? Like, what's the banter like? Is there any memorable talk, conversations? Yeah, we talk about what we want for dinner after the game sometimes. Honestly. Like, yeah, we, <laughs> it's not no, it's never, not, like, baseball stuff. Yeah, if it's a tough situation, uh, sometimes our catcher will come out and just tell us to smile. Like, one of our, one of our catchers, we both uh, pitched to uh, – Chandler Siegel, he he's big on that. He he knew when the pitchers were uh, uptight or when it was a tough situation, he would come out and say, "Hey," he would just try to make you laugh, try to make you calm down. Yeah. And I think 
uh, that's what really I think mound visits are for catchers sometimes, which is huge. I think for as a pitcher, it helps. So the catcher plays a little therapy. A little, yeah, that's a yeah. Therapist over here. So that's you good. <laughs> that's good to hear. So it's like you definitely, you guys definitely rely on your teammates, rely on the the catcher not only for the game plan but also sometimes it's just keep you focused. Absolutely. Make you be a little bit more mindful yeah. in the moment. So there's so much that goes in yeah. to this now, now that I'm learning that you have your dynamic with your catcher. You have to have a good bond and relationship with him. You have to obviously know like the score in the situation during the game. You also have to be aware of like the batter and the strengths and weaknesses he, he brings to the table. So you, you're all that. And then you're out there on the mound and, and you're pitching. So with, with all these different factors, is that something that ever becomes overwhelming at times or is it to the point where you I guess this is the reason you guys report two months before everyone else you practice it you prepared so much that it just becomes second nature I'd say yeah yeah there's yeah there's a lot that goes into it I mean we bunt defenses you have to know the signs you have to know when to pick off you have to know when when they're going to steal there's just a lot that goes in that you have to be mentally prepared for and if you if you're not mentally prepared it's going to be a lot tougher on you to get the outs to throw strikes so you guys like fielding your position as well love it oh yeah i love it yeah, yeah. that's cool yeah we're the real athletes <laughs> and you got you guys were saying do, you, do either of you guys get to hit at all not yet honestly i hope then i'll get to d8 soon <laughs> nice <laughs> right on. yeah i can i can hit it it just doesn't go far all right that's fair good contact oh, i don't want to see a hundred <laughs> so uh, you guys both mentioned a little bit about like kind of your struggles growing up and being like late bloomers anything like specifically in a like a specific memory of a game where you felt like you were melting down a little bit and you had to pull it together and you came back strong or something vice versa where you you completely melted down it was just a bad game and if so what'd you learn from it uh i'll start um first thing off the top of my mind uh, my junior year at UIS, my conference tournament game, we went down to Missouri. It was like 100 degrees on turf, and we were playing against USI. Uh, they go to the World Series all the time for D2, but there were our rivals, and we swept them to start the year. I threw a no-hitter into the seventh inning in a seven-inning game. And then, so I had a lot of confidence going into this game. And then it was just not it. I uh, I had like a two ERA. I was doing really good this year. And this kid, Drake McNamara, just red hot. I'm getting everyone Still out. Still know his name. But this kid, <laughs> I have him 0-2 in the first inning. He hits a double, just pissed right up the middle. I was like, Wow. And then it kind of just a rally started. I ended up giving, like, three runs and three innings. Else. And that's terrible for me. I don't – like, it was not the year. And so we ended up getting a regional bid. We ended up losing in conference tournament, get a regional bid. And that game was just eating me alive. And uh, I threw in the regional tournament. I did a lot better. And then the next year, I was still thinking about that game. Going wow. to play USI. Really? So, yeah, it it stays with you. But that taught me a whole lot. Yeah. USI, University of Southern Indiana? Yes. 
Okay. Yeah. I'm from Indiana. Yeah, they're so. good, man. Wow. Oh, man. Yeah. My my uh my little brother played some some college ball. He ended up going. He's at Danville Community College. Oh, there and you go. Played at Southern Illinois. We get a lot of Danville kids over to UIS. Nice. Right on. So essentially, you had that pretty much that three bad innings, and that kind of haunted you for over a year. Yeah, it was like uh, my only like actual bad game that year. So it tore me alive. But we ended up competing really well in the regional that year and we played usi again uh-huh. in the game to go to the championship and then to the world series and uh wow. it was insane we both put up seven spots in the first inning it was just a dog fight but uh the next year when we faced them i wanted like blood i was so mad mm-hmm. still and they were <laughs> our uh season opener i believe and i threw really well I was like, I think I get no runs against them. We swept them again. Oh, wow. So it's a good little bounce back. Are you someone who works well, pitches well, when you're kind of – you have that oh, fuel and that fire, that emotion going? Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. That's cool. All right. What about you, Dylan? Do you have any, uh, any, any st- similar stories growing up? Um, I mean, growing up in California, playing California baseball my entire life, uh, definitely didn't have any any weather problems. Amazing weather every time I went out on the field. And then my senior year came, and I went out to Iowa, and it was cold in winter. They have ever had it negative sixty five degrees, and it it was a huge huge yeah. difference. And I never never once expected it in my entire life. To, I mean, it's just something you don't yeah. really think of. Yeah. And I still remember pitching in a in a playoff game against Bellevue and my arm was all taped up because my, my UCL has been been bugging me for the whole season and right. I just never could get healthy and injuries have definitely been the reason why I, I've struggled and uh, it was, it was just a nightmare, literally just a nightmare because I played them early in the year. Injuries still didn't, didn't get better. Took some weeks off and to get ready for the Bellevue game again in the playoffs and they, they just smacked me around. It, it was brutal. I I remember getting out of getting out of the first inning or something, and then, oh man, it was like second inning. You know, left-handed batter came in and yeah. took it deep for three runs, and I just, <laughs> oh, just couldn't do it anymore. Elbow was done. I oh man, so handled ball off to my teammates, and they they gave it a good fight, and it was just just tough. So how do you guys uh, bounce back from like a, a poor outing like that? Like, what's it like the next game? Do you keep that in the back of your mind, or you you try to shut it out? Oh. Never. It's always a new game. It's the best thing about baseball is that once a day is over with, you have the new, new pitch. Yeah, see, we talk about this all the time. This, this, uh, this notion of resilience. You know, what you're describing is an ability to, you know, have a bad outcome, right? And you feel bad about it. You hate to lose, but you recognize that, hey, you know, um, tomorrow's another day, and that can apply not just game to game, but even inning to inning, you know, at bat to at bat, right? Throw to throw. I mean, if you have that ability to just kind of like move on, right? Uh, and not focus on what has just happened, you know, good or bad, really, you never get too high or too low. Um, and it sounds like you guys have a, a, an innate sense of, of this kind of thing. Is it something that was taught or something you just kind of have built in? I'd say that's oh. a learned trait. Just yeah. dealing with it all the time. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a 
I agree with him. I, I think it's more of the whole uh, being able to, to overcome the, the bad is the same as overcoming the good. I mean, if you throw a, a no hitter, the game, game four, and then your next out and you go out saying, Oh, I'm going to throw another no hitter. Yeah. That's good to be positive. But at the same time, you don't want to get, get ahead of yourself. If that makes sense. Yeah. So I had a question that goes kind of along with resilience. I think having a like awareness of yourself and like, when do you perform at your best? I know AJ, you mentioned that and there's in some instances where you keep that fuel, that anger that you get from a, a past poor outing and you'll use it as fuel to the fire to, for your next outing. Um, and you perform well based off that. I was wondering if for you, Dylan, do you feel like you can use like negative emotions or you, do you pitch better when you're angry or upset or do you feel like you need to be in a more calm, cool, collected state? Uh, no, I definitely, I mean, if it's the game before I let it go, I, I just wash it and get the new opportunity. But if it's the game of, I, I definitely take the, uh, the anger as an advantage. I definitely pitch better when I'm, when I'm angry, but okay. I, I've learned that it, it can hurt me at, at the same time. So that's when I take a deep breath and I, I slow the game down. Okay. Baseball, you definitely have to stay like in a medium area. You can't get too high or too low because you get too low, obviously you're not going to perform. You get too high, you get humbled. So. so it sounds like you have to maintain what we call mindfulness. Like you have to have your finger on your pulse. You have to know that, all right, I, I, I feel my emotional temperature rising. I'm going to get a little upset here, but I'm going to use it as fuel and I'm not going to let it get out of hand and maybe I'll have to take yeah. a deep breath to lower it a little bit. But mm -hmm. I think, yeah, so it sounds like both you kind of utilize that mindfulness. Yeah. We, we talk a, a, a bit about the notion of identity and personality and how sometimes that kind of influences people to go into certain types of sports, but also within that sport, go into you know, certain positions. Um, the pitcher is kind of like the quarterback, as, as Tori mentioned earlier. It's a very unique position, a lot of attention. Um, pressure on those you know visuals would you say that there are certain personality types that would be more likely to go into pitching well that's a that's interesting um dylan yeah. you got anything <laughs> uh, uh honestly it's not really i mean i've had a lot of teammates playing and and there's so many different personalities and uh it didn't affect them in any way they they all have their own strengths and weaknesses and i think that's a uh, something that they could cope to i guess if that mm -hmm. makes sense yeah for sure it does and would you say that as far as like being a very successful pitcher and a great pitcher as opposed to just like a good pitcher are there certain character traits that you should probably have that may be unique to pitching over other positions on the field yeah i think you need to be competitive and you need to i mean you need to be a bulldog you need to want to get the outs because yeah. they're not just going to be handed to you no that's how i feel man that's that's what i'm thinking is like you know we talk about quarterbacks we talk about football a lot and i'm so happy we have baseball players here because we don't talk about that sport enough but just like with the court i mean most quarterbacks i mean they're alpha dogs you know they're not, they're not guys that are you know just trying to kind of you know go along or whatever good ones anyway yeah i mean it's like because you have to yeah. basically take on a lot of pressure you have to basically be the guy that's answering for the team you know yeah you have teammates in the field but all eyes are on you you have the ball in your deal with the, the pressure that comes with whatever happens right i'd say yes um 
This isn't yeah. talked about enough, but I think catchers have the same pressure because we can't operate without a successful catcher. If someone's smart, uh, baseball is a big thinking game. So I agree with that. Kind of the same mentality as the quarterback goes to baseball, like pitching and catching. Catcher gets to hide behind that mask, though. <laughs> Uh, have either either you guys ever closed a game? Because I know that you you were talking yeah. about personalities, and I'm I just think about closers in the MLB, like John Rocker, like Eric Gagne. Was that his name? The old Dodgers closer, uh, Brian. Yeah, Eric Gagne. Yeah. Eric Gagne. Yeah. Like, yeah. So many glasses, personalities. Goggles. Yeah. yeah he was a man. He was a man. Is that? Have you noticed like closers on your teams? I don't know if you guys have ever been a closer. Have do they have a specific personality? Some of them are. Uh, I've, they're all weird. <laughs> yeah. Because I know pitches usually usually the the closer only needs one or two pitches and they just go out there yeah. full tilt. Yeah. 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 Uh <laughs> I uh my first game in single A, I actually closed and it was different. Um I came in, uh we had a pretty big crowd, like I think six to nine thousand people, something like that. And it was my first game. I got off a plane flight all night didn't sleep at all i didn't think i was gonna play that night and i get there and the coach is like hey you good to play tonight and i was like no but yeah i'm good and uh <laughs> i came in i was exhausted but as soon as i uh, started throwing my warm-up pitches my adrenaline was pumping because everyone is yelling we had like a one-run lead um every strike off through they just got louder and louder so i mean i think you do have to have a personality for it because me doing it for my first time, I was like, wow, this is different. But all you have to do is go get three outs. But you can't walk people. You can't mess around. You got to attack. And I think you definitely have to have personality for that. Yeah, I agree. I think you have to be able to control the adrenaline because once you're closing, that's the end of the game. That's It's do or die at that point. And I think it's it's all serious talk when it comes to closing. Awesome. We're we're gonna have to get you guys out of here here in a sec. Um, but I want to add a couple more questions. What, well, like, what's going on right now with minor league baseball? Uh, I don't really know. It, I found out from Instagram that our season's definitely canceled today. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> they they, they announced today that they're canceling the minor league what? season. And like one one of the many unfortunate things about the minor league season possibility of that not playing out is that the the Paw Sox, which is the minor league, which is I think the AAA affiliate of the Red Sox, they were supposed to play their last season in their stadium, and they their stadium has been around for a very very long time and is extremely well known. And this was supposed to be their last season. They're moving. I don't. I forgot where they're moving, but they're not going to be able to play out their last season. And not not going to be able to give their stadium like a proper farewell. So yeah, that's I mean, brutal. like there's so many unfortunate things about season especially in the minor leagues it really sucks guys it really does when's the, yeah when's the last time you guys didn't play a full seat like didn't have a season didn't play baseball uh high school before i started playing <laughs> wow it, it's so, been high school for me i mean i was i'm actually a free agent right now i got released a couple of weeks ago from uh the covid and i actually i think four weeks ago from today i actually had shoulder surgery so i'm currently just recovering and trying oh, to get wow. through all this right now good luck, man. um the good thing about this is that i yeah thanks i appreciate it and i mean guys like dean who who are still under contract with a certain team i i 
heard. I don't know if it's true yet, but they, they're allowed to uh, find an independent ball team to play on mm-hmm. without getting in trouble with their whole contract, which would be huge for them so they can actually get get the live reps they need to be be ready to go because they can't really ask them to be, hey, you're coming to pitch in a week, be ready, and not have a clue what to do before that. So yeah. I feel like that's a huge opening for independent okay. ball and minor league guys who are looking for a spot. So you may still get some pitches in after all. <laughs> yeah. So Dylan, you're going to get some good needed rest. One last question for you guys. Um, we talked a lot about resilience. We talked a lot about, you know, how to kind of like be flexible with, you know, how we're reacting and responding to what's happening in the moment. Right. Um, to what extent would you guys say that mental skills training if there was something like a program you could participate in that maybe the, the team or the organization, the league that you were playing for offered, would you find something like that helpful in terms of knowing how to kind of be in the moment, learning how to deal with anxiety, learning how to deal with stress? Is that something that would be useful, you think, to, to baseball players? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've had my baseball career, I've had three – three knee surgeries, this shoulder surgery and uh, a partially torn UCL my senior year. And I, it just definitely caused me to be super, super down on myself. I've been depressed. Um, certainly dark times with all, all that involvement. I can't imagine what it is for other people as well. Did you have anyone as part of your, an organization or a team or at your college to, to look to for guidance or help in those situations? Uh, no, just a couple teammates, uh, teammates who were there for me who struggled as well. Um, we helped each other out, and what environment? I mean, I, I think it's very yeah. important to just, yeah, <laughs> I think it's important to speak up about it and get the help because I think your mind's your your worst enemy. I guess I mean it can really take a toll on it, and I think it's important to to speak about it. Absolutely. That, that I guess that speaks to the value of uh, team sports and, and being on, a, on mm-hmm. a team where you can learn from each other and grow and mature. All right. Well, I'll, I'll leave you guys with this. Through playing sports your entire lives, what are like the biggest things you've learned or, or gained from sports? Um, whether that's just like you learn the value of hard work, like what are the things you've taken away from playing sports? I think I've life? learned the most through baseball. I feel it's any sport that I've played. Um, it's really tough. There's so many things that go into it, and the mental side of it is far-fetched. And uh, I think that it taught me all life skills that I have today. And uh, if I don't, if I didn't play baseball my whole life, I don't know where I'd be or who I'd be, you know. And I definitely thank baseball for that. Yeah, I agree. I think it opened up a lot of uh, life lessons and not only that, but a lot of, a lot of uh, relationships with uh, teammates and coaches who will probably be with you for the rest of your life. That's awesome, man. All right. Well, uh, once again, man, I appreciate both of you guys coming on. Um, no so problem. Thanks for having us. us. Really great meeting you guys. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, we, we look forward to uh, maybe seeing you guys play yeah. in the major someday. And I know it's a grind. I know it's a journey. This uh, whole COVID situation is just going to be a, a hurdle and an obstacle, but it'll make you guys stronger. Yeah, take advantage. You get a whole year oh, yeah. to train yep. with nothing. Yes. 
Absolutely. You see in that, that aspect. I mean, everyone's probably sitting around. You can be the one guy that's actually working out every day. We'll, we'll be rooting for you guys. We're going to be promoting you on our social media. And obviously, you're going to be on our, on our show. And, you know, we're going to be in your, your, your corner, you know, for the duration of your career. So, awesome, yeah, for man. sure. Appreciate you guys. Absolutely, man. Yep. Uh, right on. I'll give you all a follow fun. and shout you out on social media too as well. Absolutely. All right. Appreciate that. Dane, the big Dean. Good. Thanks for inviting us. It was fun. Man. Great appreciate meeting you guys. Yep. Good luck. Appreciate it. It was fun. Yeah, you too. Thanks, guys. Yes, sir. Stay safe. Thank you.